We are uh, looking at the Psalms this fall. We're going to look at 15 Psalms out of Book 1. There are five books of the Psalms, actually. And Book 1 is Psalm 1 to, to 41. Most of them were written by David. In fact, David wrote probably over 70 Psalms. Now, the reason that we are doing that, uh, and I'll say this every week so we can all get up to speed, is because as a pastor for 30 years, it's amazing to me how, how many of us know the lyrics of the gospel, but we don't know the music. Right? We're, we're deaf to it. We're tone deaf. We're not dancing. And a lot of us are musicians, and we, we like poems, and we like music, and and, uh, and yet, ironically, we, we, we don't dance the gospel. And so, so we're looking at the Psalms because you have in the Psalms uh, this record uh, of men who are wrestling with how to apply the reality of the true and living God later revealed as the triune God in the New Testament. How does that work its way out in your life? And so that's why I want to look at, at, at these Psalms. Um, and so today we're going to look at Psalm 13. I'm going to tell you why we're going to look at Psalm 13 in a minute when I give more of an introduction, but we looked at Psalm 1 and 2, okay? And what we said, if you remember, that Psalm 1 and 2, probably both written by David, certainly <clears throat> Peter thought David wrote Psalm 2, as he quotes it as David's Psalm in Acts 2, <clears throat> But, but you have uh, the gate, what they call the gateway psalms into the rest of the psalms. And Psalm 1, as we looked at, is, is the man who's blessed. The woman who is blessed. And it describes it for us. Those who meditate upon the law of God, who are rooted in Him, planted by God, by the rivers of water. Uh, and then we looked at Psalm 2, this uh, coronation psalm, that we're looking ultimately for a king who would be Psalm 1. We all look for that, don't we? When you have a friend, you want your friend to be who you think your friend says he is. And yet we're often disappointed with our husbands and our wives and, and our pastors and our elders because we're not what we should be. But you see, ultimately, Jesus Christ is Psalm 1 and 2. Now, the, from, from now on out, what we're going to see is David himself knowing that he is called and ordained of God to be the king of his people, to rule, and to bring righteousness in the earth through the nation of Israel. <laughs> he doesn't do so well. And uh, we're going to see David in Psalm 13. Just six verses. And man, there's some of you that need to know that God is at work because you don't feel like He is. David struggled with that, I think, in this song. The six verses. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, 
Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, there are those who are here today who came to church not believing that you would speak to them because of the darkness and the loneliness that they have felt so many weeks and months before here at Redeemer. So Lord, I pray especially for those today who are hurting and lonely. They feel like they cry out to you, but you don't hear. Lord, as a pastor, I would long for these broken ones, these sheep who hurt, to really believe the song we just we just sang. Oh, the deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis a vast ocean of blessing. Father, I pray that you would work in them especially, the broken. Jesus, you said, smoking flax you will not put out. And a bending reed you will not break. Or Jesus, you said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, for you are gentle heart, meek. What an amazing God. And so I pray that you would work this morning. And I ask it in your name. Amen. This psalm uh, has a special meaning to me. It is the first text I ever preached from. I was uh, taking a homiletics class, which is a fancy word for a preaching class. And I'd never preached before. It was daunting to, to me for several reasons that I want to explain uh, in a moment. But what made the sermon even more difficult was that the professor didn't assign a text. He said, you pick any text you want to out of the Bible. <laughs> I was like, oh man. It had been nice if you'd just given me an assignment. Where do I begin? Now I ultimately chose this text because the writer, David seem to be reading my mind and putting my very unsettling thoughts into words for everyone to read. Because I, at that point of my life, was probably at the most pressing time I've ever experienced in my life. The refiner's fire, you know, that the Bible talks about. If you're a believer... He puts you in that fire to run out the dross of unbelief. And then he starts, uh, depending on your calling to a certain extent, he begins to uh, bring that fire up to burn out dross. 
Because there's more to being a Christian than knowing uh, the doctrines of the faith. Or the, oh yeah, I believe you're justified by faith. I don't believe you're justified by works. I believe you're justified by faith. But where we learn that is really real in space and time is that the just shall live by faith. It was my first year at seminary. And I was beginning to think that I had made a tremendous mistake by bringing my beautiful wife that I love so dearly. We've been married about seven or eight years. And my children from South Carolina to St. Louis. And I want you to know that the self-doubts began to, to work in my life in such a way that my mind never seemed to rest. Uh, it was spinning, churning, never resting, and able to set itself on what I had known as a Christian for 10 years. And all I could do was look at my circumstances. It was, it was as though I was at the center of the universe with all these forces and pressures, and nobody else existed on it. And I knew that wasn't right. You see, after one decade of being a Christian, I came to Christ at about 17 years old. I'm probably 27 at the time. I had gone from a place of really having a great deal of self-confidence because, you see, I was not looking for God when I was converted. In fact, I asked one of my new members' classes, I said, how many of y'all have been dramatically converted? And we had about 25 or 30 people in there. I think only one other person raised their hand. That's the way it usually works. Usually it's kind of this process for a lot of us. Maybe you're still in the process. And we're kind of, in, in a way, we're all still in that process of trying to understand what is the gospel and how do I apply it to my life. Um, but man, I was, uh, I was not looking for God. And I went from being a self-confident, probably a jerk, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, to God slowly but surely breaking me. And here I was at my second uh, semester uh, at seminary, and I can remember thinking <clears throat> how much better my life was before I knew Christ. You ever felt that way? It was easier, it was more fun. I was kind of driving the car. I kind of knew where I was headed. I knew where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. And now I meet Christ, and all of a sudden I'm on his boat. And he's calling me uh, into the ministry. You see, I didn't know that when I was 17. I did not know when I was 17 at 59 years old, and yes, I'm 59 years old, that I would be standing here today addressing you with whether you believe the gospel or not. And so God begins to, to work in me, and, and so he, he's taken away every bit of self-confidence. And I can remember, this is the truth, I would go to class, and I would, I would try to find the biggest guy in the class and sit behind him. And the reason is I did not want the professor to call on me to pray because I couldn't string three words together. I would come home at night and 
I have a great wife, and it wasn't like I couldn't tell her, but I didn't think it was right for me to bring her all the way out to St. Louis and then all of a sudden tell her, you know, I think I've really made a huge mistake. Let's just turn around and go back. Not to mention the fact that my pride would not allow me to be a failure. And if you want, ladies, you want to understand men, that's, that is their greatest fear, is it not? And so I'd be with my kids, Ben and Elizabeth. They were two and three years old, and I'd be with them, and I'd have a stack of Hebrew cards, a stack of Greek cards. <laughs> and I'm, you got to put them on a little ring, and I'd be, but I would be with them, but I'm, I'm not with them. Have you ever been like that? Where you're there, but you're not really there because of all the problems uh, that you have in your life. Let me tell you what I felt like if you know anything uh, about Jacob. Right, Jacob the deceiver. Uh, Jacob uh, had deceived his brother uh, Esau. And he takes off and he, uh, and he goes to Laban, uh, his father-in-law, who became his father-in-law. He deceived him. And so here he is uh, going, uh, Laban's chasing him. And he's got to go back to his homeland where Esau was. And Esau was before him and Jacob, I mean, uh, Laban was behind him. And he felt absolutely trapped. There's no hope for me. And then that's when God met him that night and he wrestled with God. And after that, he walked with a limp, right? God touched him and he wrestled with God. I had never felt so lonely in my life. Indeed, I had never felt lonely in my my life. But now I was shut up with my thoughts and I was shut out from a world that was moving ahead without me. You know what I'm saying? You ever felt that way? It's all moving forward and I'm stuck. I felt alone and I want to tell you, I felt forsaken. Now maybe you feel that way this morning. And if you do, my heart goes out to you. Maybe you feel completely alone in your situation. In fact, if you're college students, you know that they say the number one group of people that feel lonely are college students. But loneliness can hit you at any point in your life and it can be devastating. Can I, can I describe loneliness for some of y'all? Let me start with the middle schoolers. And I'm going to give you, just so we can make sure we're on the same page about this, because I think this is a heartfelt prayer by King David who's absolutely agonizing. Loneliness for some of you middle schoolers is when you go to lunch and there's nobody to sit with. You, people, you adults ever think about the pain and suffering that children struggle with? Their loneliness. It's when you uh, have been out sick for a few days at school. And maybe you've been out for a week and nobody even knows you were gone. Loneliness is when you have an opinion about some conversation, but no one cares about what you have to say. I've never had to struggle with that. I'm a pastor. Seriously. Like, well, how would you think about that? But I cannot imagine what it would be like. For some of you to want to be able to interject something, but people are treating you as though your opinion doesn't matter because you have no weightiness about you. You understand how lonely that could be for people here? Loneliness is having no one who will speak to you after church. I see it happen. Some people are a lot easier to talk to, aren't they? 
Oh, yeah, man, let's talk about it. You're a Georgia fan. You're a Carolina fan, whatever. And, uh, but nobody talks to you. Because nobody wants to, because you know what? It's just not, there's something that they just, they're not. How lonely would that be? How lonely is it for, for some of you when you do get to talk to somebody, you go home and you're by yourself and you're there all afternoon, you're by yourself. Uh, loneliness is when you hurt someone and they won't forgive you. And I know that's going on in this church. You've hurt someone and you want to be forgiven. But they're not being very Christian about it. And they won't forgive you. Man, that's lonely. Loneliness is when you won't forgive. And you live up there in your mind. And it, the whole world's going around. But you know what? That person right there, I tell you what, I do not like that person. I will not forgive that person. And there you are. The, the love of God is just shut off because, because you're by yourself thinking about how much you hate people. Can I go forward on this loneliness thing? Because I'm trying to hit somebody out there. Loneliness is when you have made a bad financial decision. And you've hurt those, especially as men. You, you hurt your family because you did something stupid. And your kids can't be members of the country club. Matter of fact, they can't even be members of the YMCA because you made a stupid mistake. Loneliness is being diagnosed with a mental illness. Some of you have been diagnosed with mental illness, and it's hard to go, oh, I'm, I'm what? I'm, I'm OC what? I, I, I'm by, by what? Loneliness is having same-sex attraction, and you're a Christian, and you just wish you didn't have that. Don't act on it. I had a good friend of mine that struggled with it all his life. He was always honest about it up front. He's married and has four kids. He's a ruling elder in the PCA in a big church. And he finally shared that with a bunch of, uh, you know, 45 elders. And do you know that three of the elders came to him afterwards? He shared with them that he struggled with that. But he's a faithful guy. Faithful to Christ. Faithful to his family. Would you... And do you know that three of the elders came to him and said they struggled with that? But they'd never been able to tell anybody. You don't think that would be lonely? To not even be able to tell your spouse? Or to be a member here at Redeemer that struggles with same-sex attraction and if you felt like if anybody knew that, they would not have anything to do with you. Loneliness is addiction. Drugs, alcohol, porn. And the worst of all that people don't really realize they're addicted to is self-righteousness. You're addicted to being important and everybody respecting you and that you're honored and therefore you're always mad about things. Isn't that terrible to be lonely, to be over there being angry at everybody because they're not as spiritual as you are? God, what an addiction. Loneliness is living with a mess you made in your life because you thought you could run your life. And loneliness, I think, sometimes is the heart of being a faithful leader. To enter into people's lives 
uh, to be willing to be misunderstood by other people because, you know what, you're, you, you can't tell that person about that person. It's being misunderstood. Uh, it's being the owner of a business and having to fire people because, you know what, you, 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 there's not enough money coming in. And you know for two weeks ahead of time that that person who's happy, you're going to have to. You're going to have to fire. You're going to have to let them go. And the list goes on and on. Could I keep on going? Hopefully I've hit one or two of you. Because I think this text addresses uh, this, this issue, this, this longing to know that this God who seems to be um, putting me in situations and then ask me to trust Him when I feel like I can't trust Him. In fact, in fact loneliness... I think is the, probably the most crushing thing that's out there. I know I've said this before, but the first thing that God called bad was before there was ever sin in the world, and He said it is not good that man should be alone, to be, to be separate, to be in solitude. And I think this is why this text is so valuable to some of you who are here this morning and you're going, I wanted to come to church. I know I should love God. I know I should want to serve God, but He scares me. If you don't feel that way, you will at some point. If you don't feel that way, I don't think you've ever made a really serious attempt at what it means to take up your cross and follow Christ. Well, my friends, here's David. I think he is describing the essence of what it feels like to be forsaken by God. My favorite verse 2 is the one that rung in my head. I don't like this. this is the, I say I don't like It's the ESV translation. I like the NIV translation where it says, uh, how, how long, O oh Lord, must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Does that describe you? God, will this ever end? Are you capricious? Have you brought me out of the wilderness to, out into the wilderness to die? I have trusted you and where has it gotten me? I've been a good Christian. I've been in a discipleship program. I could go on and on and on. And now you find yourself and you don't know if you can trust Him. Well, we see this in David. And I guess if there's anybody I want to minister to this morning, I want to minister to you. They're so depressed and so discouraged. You've messed up so bad or maybe you haven't messed up. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. And that's what's the tricky thing about this, as we'll see. And you feel alone. So here's what we're going to look at. The cry of David, the request of David, and the hope of David. Three, six verses, each verse, one and two. Two and three. I'm sorry, one and two. Three and four. There we go. Five and six. So verses 1 and 2, notice, if you would, would you look at that text? This is God's Word. The cry of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And how long will my enemy exalt over me? Some... Uh, some uh, psalmists or commentators call this the how long song or the howling song. You certainly see it there. 
Friend, there is no such thing as, as happy, clappy Christianity. It never has been. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where you go to church and the purpose of going to church is almost like, in some way, not to have to deal with reality. And so you go and you like the music or you like the message because it's going to tell me three things I need to be doing. And if I do that, then my life will be successful. Uh, you, you, it, it, it's, it's seen in books, uh, you know, Your Best Life Now. And I won't name the author, but you probably know who he is. Or uh, the, the Be Happy Attitudes was the title of another book, I remember. Didn't read it. But, but I know the Beatitudes, and there's nothing to be happy about them. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for happy clappy, not deny reality, not for pie in the sky bound by, but hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because I've got none. And you know what Jesus says? Blessed are you who are mourning. Blessed are you, for you'll be comforted. Now, the question is, where is David in this kind? What's going on in his life? Now, there's a lot of places uh, you could uh, look in David's life and see. <laughs> had this experience fairly often. But let me give you one that I think it might be. Okay? Because you need to know what he was going through to say this. Remember, uh, David was anointed to be king. He knew that he was anointed to be king. There is Saul, who is the king, who was also anointed by God to be king. And so David, when he's about 17 years old, by faith... He killed Goliath, the enemy of God, the Philistines. And, uh, and so, the, so everybody began to be amazed at David. Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. And of course, Saul gets jealous, right? Y'all know that story. And so then Saul starts coming after him over and over and over again. And David's like, What's the, what did I do? All I know is God, you know, God anointed me with oil, and, and, and here I'm, I'm to be the king, and... And I'm trusting the Lord about that. Why? I mean, if God's ordained us to be kings, it, this can all work out okay. But he's pursuing him. He's pursuing him. And then you see in the life of David, it begins to break him down. What is going on? And, and so there's, a, there's a, a place in his life in 1 Samuel 21 uh, that he gets captured uh, by a king named Achish, who's the king of Gath. And he'd been so worn down uh, that he was afraid of this king. He'd killed Goliath, but now where is God? Where is God? And, and God's not showing up. God said, I'm going to be the king. Things are getting worse. And so when he gets captured or brought before the king, he begins to faint like he's crazy. You read that story? Starts slobbering all over the place. Starts scratching on the doorpost with his fingernails. You know why he did that? Because he feared. His faith was gone, and he feared. And the king of Gath said, you know, I've got enough crazy men in my kingdom. That's what he said. And so just go on. Get him out of here. And the next place you find David is in a cave of Adullam. And I think this is when he's writing this psalm. His men saw him. 
fall apart. This brave king. But you see, to be sympathetic with David, to be sympathetic with him, there is a French proverb that says this, Sickness is true of all evils, that they come on horseback and they go on foot. We have often seen that a sudden fall brings many to the grave. Whereas pleasures come like oxen slow and heavily, but they go away like a post horse. In other words, it's not the intensity of the trial. It's not the fact that you're dying or that you found out you had cancer. That, that's an immediate thing. And it's a difficulty. But when the reality sets in that you are dying of cancer. And you're not going to get better. And it's over and over. Every day. Every day. And then people start beginning to back off. And they don't want to come say, see you because they want to go, Hey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm great. I'm dying. Or there's someone who struggles with depression or somebody who struggles with whatever it is they struggle with and, and, and it's, not, it's not the intensity of it, it's the length of it. Do you understand that? It wears you. And it wears you. That's what's going on with David. Y'all see that in the text? King David. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? He feels forgotten of God He's basically saying, God, if you're sovereign, uh, I don't think you're that sovereign. In fact, I think that you have amnesia. Alzheimer God, the good man upstairs who's not thinking too well. And then in your mind, you say, as a Christian, I gave myself to Christ and I'm willing to follow Christ. Matter of fact, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And you've done that. You're going, I am following Him. And then you begin to go, what good has it done me? You understand that? Maybe you're there this morning. And you think that God has forgotten you. And by the way, let me tell you something. If you've been in a discipleship program, and I I don't want to knock them, but there's all this American way of doing discipleship. Do you understand that discipleship, you go, man, I'm doing pretty good. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, let me tell you something. God can knock that out of you in a day. And you think, you think that you're clinging to God by all your discipleship efforts and reading your Bible and this, that, and the other. And I think that's great. Read your Bible every day and pray every day. Right? That's what you're supposed to do because it's good for you. But then, you, but then you see, God can jerk all that from you by bringing something in your life and you'll find out the only thing that's keeping you is Him holding you. And that's what makes a disciple. Like, Lord, you know what? <laughs> I have, no, I have no choice because you've got me in your hand, but I don't understand what you're doing. But not only does he think God's forgotten, he, he finally says, okay, you are God. I believe it, but how long are you going to hide your face from me? I feel no intimacy with you. That's what he talks about here. Lord, where is your, I don't see you. You know, intimacy is a wonderful thing. And you know what real intimacy is? When you look somebody right there in the face. You look your wife in the face. And you kiss her. And when you do, she looks you in the eye. You know what? Because you're together. But then when that eye drops, because there's sin going on, 
Or you go to call talk to your kids and say, hey, son, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, did you sneak out last night? Some, my neighbor, the neighbor said they saw you up on top of their roof last night. No, sir, I didn't, I, I didn't do that. And so you feel like, God, I need to know your face. For whatever reason, I'm where I am. This is real Christianity. This is the real life of faith, ladies and gentlemen. Not happy clappy. But God, I'm, he's the king. Lord, I'm trying to serve you. And what does he lose? What does this loss of the presence of God bring? Well, how long must, you know, my mind's just spinning. How long would I have to think of, wrestle with my thoughts every day and every day have sorrow in my heart? Every day I'm having sorrow in my heart. When is this going to end? Do you see him saying this? And I'm trying to get you to see this because we can move forward. How does he move forward? He prays. Do you, do you see verses 3 and 4? He prays. He makes a request. Notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, Consider and answer me, O my Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now let me tell you what's going on here. Does it say when God finally showed up that David said that prayer? Oh, okay, you're here. Now, now you showed up. Now I'm going to pray. Do you know when he's praying that prayer? He is praying that prayer in the midst of saying, How long, O Lord? You know, this is kind of the cutting edge for some of this. is a separation point for many of you because you're going, You know what? I'm done with this. And if God doesn't show up, I'm not, you know, I don't believe in this. And you get real cynical toward God. And I wouldn't do that, by the way. I would not do that. Because you see, uh, you could maybe say, how long, O Lord, forever? And God could go, well, it all depends on whether there's repentance in your life. You see, there is God's absolutely sovereign. He sees that. But don't you understand now, He begins to operate by faith. In fact, give light to my eyes is the idiom for faith. You see? You see, in other words... Um, Y'all notice how I have these glasses up here now? Do y'all, have y'all noticed when I don't have them that some of y'all are very nervous? I know because I've had somebody say, hey, can I bring you some glasses? Because I read the text wrong. I've done that. I know I'm up here and I'm, trust me, right now that all is blurred to me and I'm, I'm supposed to be reading the call of worship. But for some of y'all that know me know that I forget my glasses. But so when I'm up here without my glasses, everything's blurred and I'm not near as confident as when I have these glasses on. Right? I put, oh, there it is. And I seem to be very intelligent. <laughs> I take them off, I'm stupid. Okay, but... Okay, so, so, so here, here's what you have. Okay, I need my eyeballs to see, right? These eyes to see. But you know the problem is when I, within my eyes I look around and I see all these circumstances that are there. In fact, these eyes are limiting in that I can't see everything. I'm going to give you an, an example of that. Yesterday, I'm teaching the new members class. And I'm going and drawing on the board, and I'm waxing eloquent. And I'm thinking I'm making great points. And I turn around, and they're laughing at me. And the reason they're at, laughing at me, I said, what are y'all laughing about? And finally, one of them said, you got stuff all over your face. I had all that magic marker. and It's really kind of hard to listen to somebody talk about the atonement when... 
But those eyes did not help me see this. But you see, David is saying, Lord, I believe you're there. I know you're there. I I don't feel you're there. But now, I will take the eye of faith. You give me the eye of faith to trust in you, to call upon you. There's a great illustration of this. I, had a, I remember uh, years ago when I did RUF, I heard a guy come speak, and he had a buddy of his that was a, that was a Marine pilot. Drove, uh, I never knew Marines flew stuff, flew stuff but they're Marine pilots. But, uh, but anyhow, so they're uh, he's at Fort Pendleton, I think. That's out there in San Diego. And so he's flying a mission. His friend is flying a mission. He's doing about 600 miles an hour across the ocean. He's about maybe... 500 feet to 1,000 feet above the ocean. Okay. And he's just flying, and, and the, he's got all his instruments up there. And then all of a sudden, they all went off. And so he knows he can't touch anything because apparently you don't know which ends up when you don't have the instruments. If you don't have the instruments, you're flying, right? That's how John Kennedy was killed. The little John Kennedy, whatever. So, so he's flying across, and he just keeps flying, and his instruments aren't coming on. His instruments aren't coming on. His fuel's going down. His fuel's going down. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he starts praying, God, turn the lights on. Turn the instruments on. Turn the instruments on. And then all of a sudden, right before it was too late, bam, the instruments came on. And so he get himself back. Well, because to, left to himself, he's disoriented. So you fly by the instruments. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, in the midst of your pain and your suffering and your sorrow, you must believe and fly by the instruments. God makes his promise to you that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Some of y'all need to know that based on what you got headed for you this week, next two weeks. So finally, as we come to the end, notice not only the the cry of David uh, and the request of David, but notice the hope of David. Notice the hope. May I end on this? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now guys, it's hard to see this in the text because there's a word that's in here and I want to close on this. Here's a word. that You notice the verb tenses that David's using? I will because I have been, because I have. I've seen you. I, I, I killed Goliath. And I've seen you do a lot of amazing things. I'm scared to death. But I will trust in you, and he says it, because of your steadfast love. Now let me tell you, that's an important word that you need to know. And I know Gary Todd knows this word because we talk about it a lot. It's a Hebrew word called chesed. And, and you see, um, if I were to tell my wife, Mary Beth, I want you to know, no matter what happens to you, my love for you will be steadfast. Then she can flourish a little bit. Does that mean like now that I'm getting older, if, if I get Alzheimer's, will you care for me? I'm like, yes, I love you as steadfast. But let me tell you, this word is never used in a human context. Our human's love for God is only used in God's love for us because the word chesethir is a covenantal love. It is the only true unconditional love Because He will never leave you nor forsake you no matter what your sins deserve. Now where do we see this Hesseth love? Well, you know where you see it. Because let me tell you that every psalm is going to point to Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you think that as a human being, 
Learning obedience as a man, he felt forsaken. Well, let me back it up and let me ask you this. Do you think he ever felt lonely? Misunderstood? Knowing what he would go to on the cross that nobody understood. That's lonely. But you see, he was not only forsaken by man, but the very reason that he was forsaken by God on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to listen to this, is because God is faithful to his covenant. And God demands absolute perfect obedience to his covenant, or you cannot stand in his face. But the Hesseth love of God is God in Jesus Christ bearing that injury upon Himself. And so God forsakes His own Son. You'll never know that loneliness unless you reject Him. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is good and merciful. His love will never end. He's faithful. So, well, I don't know if I really believe that this morning. After I've said all this, you still, I don't know if I believe it. Well, it doesn't make it not true, does it? And my encouragement to you this morning is to understand that the discipline of God is not always because you've sinned. And, and by the way, who hasn't sinned this week? But sometimes it's because He has great things in store. Because His Son had to learn discipline. Why? Because he had a great calling. So maybe the reason you're feeling the way you do is the way I felt all those years ago is because God had to rip away every bit of self-confidence so that I would look to him and see that he's good. Let's pray together.